welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, Costas Halabrezos interviews author and editor Whitney Moran. A new work of fiction or nonfiction doesn't just magically burst from the writer's computer straight into the printing presses. An intermediary known as the editor plays an important, and to some, a mysterious role in the creation of each book. Today, Whitney Moran is going to lift the veil on that literary relationship. Whitney is a writer herself, co-author with Christopher Reynolds of East Coast Crafted, the essential guide to the beers, breweries, and brew pubs of Atlantic Canada. But she's also the managing editor of Nimbus Publishing and Vagrant Press. Several of the books she's edited have earned nominations and awards. And... Full disclosure, several years ago, Whitney edited my collection of essays and spice recipes entitled Season. Whitney, welcome to Book Me. Thank you. It's great to be here. How did you get on the path to becoming an editor? Well, it wasn't uh, something I ever really thought about doing. Um, Just before we started uh, the show, I was telling you how when I was a little kid, I used to come home from school and go down to my little classroom and teach Um, my sister and all the neighborhood children what I had learned at school that day Um, and I always loved reading and loved was good at English so I think you grow up um, kind of thinking oh if you're good at that then you're going to be a teacher someday so I always kind of thought that that's what I would do Um, and then I went to university um, studied English did really well um, but I still wasn't really sure the closer I got to actually becoming a teacher the more I realized that it didn't really suit my personality Um, I'm really independent worker um, I don't really like being in schools, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> You've um, done that. <laughs> yes, I don't really feel like going back. Um, so I started editing on a volunteer basis um, after doing my master's because I sort of figured if I don't know what I want to do, I'll just go to school forever. And, you know, I called myself a Peter Pan student. Um, but eventually I had to go into the real world. And, um, yeah, so I just kind of fell into it, which is a really annoying thing that people say because sometimes people ask for advice. How do I get into this? I have advice for them, but it's not the path that I took because I honestly didn't think of it as a viable career option. Um, But I think there's more knowledge about it. I mean, we have interns all the time. So obviously, you know, people are thinking about it. I think the growth of the industry in the region is a really good way of, of letting the younger generation know that it's a possibility. But yeah, I just sort of fell into it. And then luckily Nimbus was looking for um, an entry-level editor seven years ago. And uh, so I got the job and the rest is history. Now, readers are usually keen to get first-hand information from authors on how and why they write their books. That's why we have this podcast, for instance. But, but the editor still remains invisible. How do you feel about that as an editor? Um, I think it's part of the reason that I was attracted to the job, to be honest. Um, I think editing tends to attract people that are really proud of their work and don't necessarily need accolades and enjoy seeing a tangible product at the end. Um, So I'm a really creative person. I didn't really thrive in any other environments where I couldn't be creative. So for me, everything that I loved, reading, writing, um, conversing with people, I don't think a lot of people realize how relational the job is. Like, as you know, you can spend a year or two years working with an editor. And so it's, uh, it's a job where you have to have 
the ability to empathize and understand and be able to um, become what I call a temporary expert in a lot of subjects. Well, let's talk about that. How, how much of a spectrum of involvement can an editor have in helping a writer get from manuscript to a book on the shelves, in your experience? Uh, so in terms of like how little or how much you can be involved? Right. Um, I guess it just depends on the manuscript. So it's definitely a case-by-case basis. Um, it also depends on at what point we become involved. So there are several projects now that I'm in a managing editor position that um, I actually seek out. Uh, so I'll read an article and I'll say, I'll reach out to the person and say, have you ever thought of turning this into a book? And so at that point, I take on more of a developmental editor role where I help this person shape an idea of what could be a book and then work with them potentially all the way through. Other times it's a submission that comes in the mail and maybe it's just needs a substantive and a copy edit and then it's ready to go. Um, but typically we allow about a two year, two years from acquisition to publication. You used a, a word in there, a substantive for a, a substantive edit. I was wondering once you get past the grammar and the spelling and the fact checking and all that stuff, how different is it when you move into discussing the writer's structure of the book, for instance? Yeah, so I think when a lot of people think of editors, they imagine grammar, punctuation, the red pen, that whole thing. Um, but a lot of the most in-depth editing is actually substantive. So it's the beginning stages where you're actually looking at the structure and what we call the foundation or the bones of the manuscript. So for fiction, it would be things like pacing, characterization, um, you know, the actual structure. So when it comes to chapters, where they appear, um, point of view, tone. So all those things that, um, you know, if you said to someone, I really think that the point of view needs to change, that's a huge undertaking. Those are those big kind of edits that need to come before you sort of get, you, you zoom in more and more the closer you get. So when you get to the line edit, you're literally looking at the manuscript line by line. But when you're looking at substantive, it's, okay, how is the manuscript working overall? And what are the big changes that we need to kind of look at before we can um, focus on the commas? Do you ever critique the style of the writer? Yeah, um, and that's kind of a sensitive thing. So sometimes, and because acquisitions is so subjective sometimes the style um it just doesn't work for the subject matter or it doesn't work for that particular editor it can be a big ask um if it's a writer you haven't encountered before maybe that's just their style and it's not really your position to tell them to change it maybe it just means that isn't the right book for your publishing house um there can be instances of inconsistencies of style um which i think is something i'd be more comfortable um, approaching. But yeah, style is a big part of it. And um, like I said, it's subjective and it can really change the way that people read a book. So I think it's important to make sure that you're a fan of the book, most of all, if you decide to spend maybe one or two years working on it. I've read some books by established authors whose later works uh, could have been 100 pages shorter. <laughs> Can the dynamics change between the editor and the writer when the author becomes successful? Yes. Uh, it's not something I've personally had a ton of experience with, but I I do see it happen um, as the writer's ego grows and they sort of uh, realize what the editor brings to the table Sometimes I see two things happen. One, 
uh, is that they be- they come to appreciate more and more the work of the editor and rely on the editor and see it as a collaboration. Like a lot of times authors will say to me, you know, this is your book too, or this is our book. And I, I really truly believe it's the author's work and that's the way you should always see things as an editor. But I don't know, it kind of gets me through, you know, it, that's the kind of uh, appreciation that makes me really enjoy what I do. But at the same time, you hear about authors, um, and I won't name any names, but we can probably imagine who they might be, um, who you kind of hear through the rumor mill, they won't let anyone edit them. And they sort of think they know everything. And then, like you said, you get these humongous tomes or these (laughs) books that, you know, could have used an editor. And sort of the idea is that people also become afraid to edit them because they sort of loom large and you think, okay, they've had all this success. I... I better not touch it, but that's dangerous as an editor. And I think there has to be a level of honesty and transparency. Writers can point to other writers whom they admire. Any editors you admire? Yes. Uh, I Name names. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually really uh, kind of an emotional question right now because um, Gregory Younging, um, who just passed away last week, was someone I really, really admired. He was the publisher of Thetis Books, um, the only Indigenous uh, owned and operated publisher in Canada. And uh, he's someone who um, really taught me a lot. I took a few workshops with him and uh, he released a book called um, The Elements of Indigenous Style a few or last year. And it's the only Indigenous style guide that exists. Um, So it's something that we really need right now and that I know he worked on for at least a decade. So I see someone like him as really um, holding everyone in this industry accountable. Um, And also editing is something like language is dynamic. It's always changing. So we have to be adaptable and we have to change when language changes. And when, you know, we realize that we've been maybe not using the best words for things um, or not using most respectful language. So I really feel like he is uh, someone who made a huge difference. And uh, I'm sad that there won't, you know, he won't get to do a second edition and a third edition because he always said, you know, this is the first of many editions. Um, and I look forward to hearing what people say. So I really cherish the time that I had to learn from him. And uh, I hope that Thetis goes on to make many more great books in his honor. Do you have advice for first-time writers about what they should know or do before they submit a manuscript to a publisher? I do whole, like, day workshops on this, and it's a subject I'm really passionate about because I think the more educated people are about publishing, like you said, it's mysterious, uh, the better the submissions will be that we get and the easier the process will be. Um, So I think the main thing that I have to tell people is to do their research, Um, You know, we do accept unsolicited submissions, which means I get lots of mail. And it's very clear to me pretty much right away who has looked into our company and who we are and what we do and who has just sent out 100 letters to places all over the country. Um, And I suggest that people look at it like you're applying for a job and you're also applying for a bank loan at the same time. because, (laughs) And that kind of gives you the... um, I don't know. It's it's a way to look at it instead of saying, oh, this publisher owes me something, you know, because I think that's the way a lot of people look at it. Uh, but instead, you are asking the publisher to financially invest in your idea, to invest in you. And um, if you don't know 
where your work fits, um, then you're going to spend a lot of time. You're going to kind of waste a lot of time and, uh, and, you know, maybe waste a lot of publishers time. If, you know, we don't publish certain genres and you're sending that genre, um, then it's just kind of like, okay, well, maybe you waited five months to hear back and now you have to kind of start all over again. So the very first thing I say is um, every publisher should have a website that probably has what they're looking for, exactly what to send in. Um, so start there. Also, looking at the backlist of a publisher is really great. Like a lot of publishers have their catalogs right online. Take a look, see, um, do they publish something similar to what you're working on? Um, can you see gaps in their list that you might be able to fill? Um, so that's kind of the place to start. And uh, also, Places like the Writers' Fed um, offer really great workshops. I think writing groups are fantastic because you learn to write for other people and you also learn to critique other people's work. And it's really important that you're able to take critique and, and use that. So I think um, people that use better readers or have writing groups have a much better chance. Now, what about writing your book with Christopher Reynolds, East Coast Crafted? What made you decide it was time to move from uh, being a beer aficionado to uh, someone who wrote about the microbrewery explosion in the region? Yes, and it's still happening. Um, it was one of those things where as soon as I became the managing editor, I had this little folder of ideas for books. And I thought, well, if I ever get to a position where I can pitch things, then these are the ideas I want to start with. And having a some kind of book about beer in this region was there. I didn't know what it should be, but I just knew the writing's on the wall. Someone's going to do this book. It might as well be us. And I'd been writing about beer on a freelance basis for a few years. So I was really in touch with what was happening and all the players. And I knew that the growth was just going to continue. And once I became managing editor, I think within the first week, I sent, uh, I put a pitch together. <laughs> I sent it to Tara Lee Bulger, who's the general manager and one of the co-owners of Nimbus. And, uh, I didn't intend to be the person who wrote the book. Um, my idea was, this is a book we need to do. I want to manage this project and find the right person to write it. And she said, well, why don't you just write it? And I said, I Gulp. don't want to. <laughs> Gulp. <laughs> I don't have time. And um, But something told me, you need to talk to Chris Reynolds, because he had um, started up Stillwell Beer Bar um, on Barrington, and he was someone that I really... Um, looked up to in terms of like, he sort of seemed like he was at the center of everything beer um, in Nova Scotia at the very least. So I just kind of set up a meeting with him because I wanted to pick his brain and see like, who should I approach to write this? And as the conversation went on, he said, well, you know, maybe I could write a chapter. And then we kept talking. And I think it sort of just happened that he said, well, maybe we should just write this together. And I think somewhere deep down, I was kind of hoping that that would happen, but I didn't know that because it was too big of a project for me to take on. It was too big for one person unless you were retired and you could that could be your job. Um, but yeah, so it just kind of worked out because between the two of us, we had all these contacts. We were both passionate. Um, we each wrote a sample and we realized our writing style was very similar, which was really exciting because we didn't want someone to open the book and be able to figure out, oh, Chris wrote this one. Whitney wrote this one <laughs> uh, because it's also very political in a lot of ways. Um, so how, how so? Well, I mean, a lot of the interviews we did after the book came out, people would say, oh, what's your favorite beer? What's the best brewery? What's the worst brewery? And I don't like answering those questions because <laughs> beer is not every batch is the same. Um, some breweries 
start off a little rough, they get better, and you kind of have to give them a chance. So the idea for the book was that it was celebratory in nature, um, but we also wanted to give people enough knowledge that they could make those decisions for themselves. Could you read a sample? I could. Give us a sample, a taste, perhaps? (laughs) Yeah. Though independent breweries existed well before Prohibition, the Noble Experiment all but wiped the industry out just as it had in the States. Breweries across North America experienced what beer writer Stephen Beaumont refers to in his seminal The Great Canadian Beer Guide as the decline of distinction. This refers to the buying, selling, and closing of independent breweries, leaving behind just over a handful. One report suggests the number fell from 150 Canadian breweries to eight, and allowing those left, quote, to drift toward a more median taste. These were the dark ages of Nova Scotia's craft alcohol industry. Nova Scotia has since become a hotbed of breweries of all shapes and sizes. The new generation is pushing the experimental envelope, recognizing the city as more than its colonial garrison past, and following the larger trends in North American craft brewing, which see brewers consistently on the hunt for the most obscure yet drinkable ales, bringing back historical brewing techniques, and experimenting with wild fermentation, barrel aging, and collaboration brewing. It's nothing short of the most exciting time to be part of Nova Scotia's craft beer industry. Between increased buy-in from the government through initiatives like the Good Cheer Trail and the ever-increasing quality and choice in our craft beer products, Canada's Ocean Playground is quickly becoming a destination for craft beer tourists across the country and internationally. They say a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, we have the highest tides in the world, so come see what we're up to. So we should point out that uh, although you're referring to Nova Scotia there, uh, this is a regional Uh, craft beer book. Yeah, so we thought it was really important to cover all four Atlantic provinces. Um, In order to do that, we split it up. So because Nova Scotia and New Brunswick had the most, Chris and I divided those, and then I covered PEI and he covered Newfoundland and Labrador. Given the rate at which new microbreweries are opening up, were you concerned that your book would be out of date by the time it was published? Yes. uh, I became afraid to go on the internet because it seemed like every other day there was a new announcement about a new brewery opening. And it was this bittersweet thing where it was like, okay, this is great, but do we include them in the book? We have to institute a cutoff point. Um, So So do you need a a new edition? Well, (laughs) that question (laughs) makes me tired just thinking about it. Um, The thing is, when we approached this book, because we both had a a journalist background, we wanted it to be about the stories, the stories behind the breweries, the stories behind the people um, and what they were doing and why, and also the beer. Uh, We didn't want it to be like, oh, here's a tap list of what's available right now. Um, It was more about like, here's the context behind why this brewery exists, why they make this kind of beer. And there were some really great stories stories about rural development and about, um, you know, creating new bylaws just to exist and things like that. So we hope that it stands the test of time, but we also wanted it to be a kind of time capsule that indicates this is what the industry is like at this moment in time, which is what Stephen Beaumont did with his book 20 years ago. Did you have an editor? Yes. Well, (laughs) um, so I decided to take it upon myself to manage the project, which was a terrible idea because... It was too much. It was so much work. Um, but then I also had a really great editor and proofreader. Um, but it ended Named? up... Named? Marianne Ward. Yeah. And I also am a bit um, protective. So I wanted to I wanted to be as involved as possible in the project. And so I was really involved in 
um, making design decisions as well and um, helped with the photo shoot for the cover, which is actually at Stillwell. So it was really like from the very beginning to the end, I was very involved and so was Chris. Um, so it, it really feels like the most authentic representation of what we wanted it to be. And I realize not everyone has that opportunity. So I really appreciate that Nimbus let me do this gigantic, very expensive book. <laughs> Whitney, thank you very much for uh, joining me on Book Me. Thanks for having me. Let's go get a beer. <laughs> Whitney Moran is the managing editor of Nimbus Publishing and Vagrant Press in Halifax and co-author with Christopher Reynolds of the Atlantic Canada Beer Guide, East Coast Crafted. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca. That's bookmepodcast.ca. Or just pop book me with an exclamation mark in your search engine. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox is a pretty formidable editor of digital audio. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Music